I had thought about beginning tonight with a lie, that I had started writing this speech last night. But the truth is I don't write work that way. I'm lazy and anxiety adverse. So instead of waiting until the last minute, I started two weeks ago. Every morning, I wasted time on the internet with a Word document open. And after 14 days, I knew a lot about the lives of my high school classmates. (laughs) And I finished the speech. Now, I'm not recommending this approach to anyone. It's not efficient. And I'm not doing scholarly research on Facebook. But for me, writing slowly with distractions works. I wanted to tell a lie about my... Uh, process to feel connected with the speakers tonight. <laughs> All of our speakers, Nadia, a pastor, Mara, a comedian, and Tony, a theater director, well, I wouldn't say they're procrastinators. It's more that they find deadlines inspiring. And in their fields, a deadline isn't an arbitrary due date. It's an audience. It's a crowd like tonight's. There would have been something comforting if I could have shared a working style with our presenters. To be honest, sometimes I'm not sure why I wake up hours before work to write. But if I could at least agree on the process of writing, what I'm supposed to be doing with that stolen time, maybe it would make some sense. But our speaker's process, it's not mine. And thinking it should be isn't helpful. There's no universal approach to creation. For Tony, without a deadline, writing is just words on a page. An opening night is what moves words into performance. But for other people like unpublished fiction writers, getting words on a page is a goal in itself. Nadia depends on structure for her creativity. The confines of a 1,500-word speech and the weak scripture give her a path to self-expression. Without the framework of a sermon, her creativity would be like water without a vessel. Mars' method is totally different. There isn't a thing, divine or otherwise, that she's working against. Every day, she's observing and joking and coming up with a routine that expresses a unique and relatable voice. And that voice can only be measured in performance. Until she can say a joke in front of a crowd, it's unclear how funny her joke really is. Maybe you, too, need feedback to know how good your work is. Maybe you need structure. Maybe you need a deadline. Maybe you need to wake up at 6 in the morning to stare at photos of babies you'll never meet and write just a little bit. But how you do creative work, what inspires you, what pushes you, what you're trying to say, that's up to you. Tonight, we'll hear the stories of how three people choose to do it. Let's start with Nadia. There's a story in the book of Genesis where Jacob wrestles with an angel. It goes like this. Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, which, if you're keeping score at home, is biblical family values, (laughs) and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. As he wrestled with him, then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob wrestled with an angel and wouldn't let go before demanding a blessing. But when Jacob walked away, he walked away limping. While admittedly overdramatic, this is how I describe my process of writing a sermon. (laughs) For the people at House for All Sinners and Saints, I work from this thing called the Revised Common Lectionary. 
It is a set of assigned biblical texts for each Sunday of the year and is used by many denominations all over the world. And while using the assigned texts is traditional in my denomination, there's no canon law forcing me to do so, but I like the discipline of it, the challenge of it, and the Catholicity of it, which is to say I like that it unites so many Christians all over the world hearing sermons on the same text each week, even if we disagree ideologically we're hearing the same scriptures, and that unites us somehow. Plus, I'm basically not to be trusted and just choosing my own scripture to <laughs> preach from. It's such an honor to be a preacher, and a lot of my identity is in being a preacher, more than a writer, more than a speaker, more than even a pastor. I'm a preacher. Um, but it's an extremely harrowing experience for me each week because it's like, my blood ends up in those sermons. I describe it as a wrestling match between me and the text. And I take my community into that wrestling match with me, and I don't walk away before demanding a blessing from, for them from that text. And when I walk away, I often walk away limping. So to be a preacher is costly because I have to find something in that text that breaks my own heart. I have to confront the thing in the text that I don't want to look at in myself. It's really easy to just gloss over and say the obvious thing or just give a little lesson in morality or some information about life in the first century, but I try to dig deeper and say, what makes me uncomfortable in this text? And I submit to this process on behalf of my community, and I think this is why one of my parishioners said once, I just love having a preacher who's so clearly preaching to herself and letting us overhear it. (laughs) But it's a difficult thing for me. It's never easy. I preach all over the world, and yet I always lack confidence when I'm in the process of writing a sermon. Every week, when I look at the text assigned for that week, I think, well, I've had a pretty good run, but it's over now. I'm not kidding. I'm convinced that every sermon is crap and that people are just going to feel bad for me and that I should really apologize before preaching it because my people deserve so much more than what I have to offer. And I feel this crisis of confidence nearly every single time I have to write a sermon, but never when I'm preaching it and never after it's preached. Because once it's being uttered out loud, it is no longer my writing. It has become something that is heard. And what happens to my people in the hearing of my sermons is between them and God, and I no longer have any responsibility for it. But up until then, it's singularly unpleasant. Because what I want people to get in the hearing of these sermons is freedom. I want them to feel unbound to feel loved and forgiven and more sure of their true identity. I want to preach good news, especially since what passes for preaching in most churches, liberal or conservative, is some version of here's the problem and here's what you should be doing about it. And I have never once in my entire life heard that as good news. For the news to be good, it must be about a power greater than ourselves. It must be about God. For it to be good news... And not just a longer to-do list, it must be about grace. Grace is this incredible power in the world. And I feel like a lot of times it goes unrecognized. We call it luck or coincidence or medical science. Or we call it our own gumption or work ethic, whatever. 
I think that there is this powerful force that Jesus talks about that is actually more powerful than fear, more powerful than violence, more powerful than authority. Grace can subvert all those things. I really believe that grace and the power of forgiveness and giving things and getting things that aren't earned and the way in which all of our fuck-ups are never the final word and can somehow still be redeemed is such a powerful force in the world. And I see that force all around me all the time, which is, I think, why I'm a preacher. Okay, so the text assigned for this last July 10th was the parable of the Good Samaritan. The word good is never in the text. We imported that because we like morality tales. (laughs) So you know the story probably. A man was robbed and beaten and left on the side of the road to Jericho, and a priest walks by and does jack shit. Remember that? And then a lawyer walks by and does the same, but then a Samaritan, which is a group of people deeply disliked by the people Jesus was speaking to, shows mercy to the man and tends his wounds and takes him to an inn and pays for him to stay there until he's well. It's a famous story. And it just so happens that it was a sign for the week that everything went to shit. (laughs) Namely, the week that we watched as Alton Sterling, laying on the ground, was shot dead by police. And then a video was uploaded of Philando Castile bleeding to death in front of his girlfriend and her child after being shot by a Minneapolis policeman. And then footage of Micah Johnson shooting into a crowd of protesters, killing five cops and injuring nine cops in Dallas. We were still reeling from Orlando and Nice and the bombing at the airport in Istanbul and all the other horrific shit that we humans seem to be cranking out at a stunningly quick pace these days. And because I'm a liberal Christian, my social media news feed was filled with outrage and calls for justice and comments like, if your preacher doesn't speak out against police shootings this Sunday, find another church. And so I struggled with what to say. I mean, that whole speaking truth to power thing can really be seen as heroic, and I want to be seen as heroic, and so maybe I should preach a sermon that's a searing sermon about racism and police brutality, but honestly, my congregation is already on board with that stuff. Their news feeds were also filled with much of the same stuff as mine. So just repeating what they've already read over and over in meme form all week was not going to be good news for them or for me. They needed a sermon. And I was so distracted by what the best reaction was to the news cycle, by how I could be seen as being a good ally or as compassionate or as sufficiently outraged that... I was unable to see opportunities to be compassionate to the real, actual human beings right in front of me that week. Plus, self-righteousness. I mean, it feels good for a minute, but kind of like the way that peeing your pants feels warm for a minute. (laughs) See, what I had that week was plenty of righteous outrage, but what I desperately needed and couldn't find anywhere was good news. And I felt like even searching for good news was to deny that the bad news was bad. And I was getting depressed about it all, and because how do I preach good news during a week like that and not have it just sound like vapid optimism? I was feeling despair. I was feeling resentment about having to step up to the plate again after having just preached after Orlando. I was scared. I was tired. And I couldn't stop reading the news which is why on Friday of that week, I hung out with some of my parishioners at a local coffee shop during office hours. And as is often the case, 
One of them showed me enough light in the darkness that I was able to find some good news in a terrible week. So in the sermon I said, A man was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when a group of robbers or terrorists or racist cops attacked him by a suicide bomb or an AR-15 assault rifle or by shooting him as he lay on the ground and they left the man for dead outside the airport or on the floor of the gay nightclub or in his car next to his girlfriend or along the route of a protest march and the entire assault was captured by a bystander's cell phone and immediately uploaded to Facebook within seconds. A Lutheran pastor walks by and is so absorbed in watching the video of the attack and formulating her perfectly articulated outrage on Twitter (laughs) that she doesn't even see the beaten man that is literally right in front of her. She wants so badly to be the good ally that she misses an opportunity to show compassion to an actual human being right in front of her. Then the director of a nonprofit walks by and is too burdened by the way in which he himself is complicit in the availability of the weapon or the bad conditions of the road or the rigged economic system that contributed to the man traveling alone on an unsafe road that he chooses to not even look up from his stock portfolio app and he too missed the chance to show mercy. Now by the time these two have passed the man, hundreds of thousands of people have commented on the video of his assault. (laughs) either in turn expressing racist thoughts about the guy who was assaulted or rants about the Second Amendment. And then a minute later, we are all posting comments about how this is all about robbers when suddenly Salon.com has reposted the Facebook video of the assault along with an article titled, Why Everything You Think About Robbers Is Wrong. And then one minute later, Salon.com posts a Facebook video of the assault along with an article titled, The Problem With Commenters. (laughs) So now... By the time the Samaritan comes along and sees the man who was robbed and assaulted, gives him water in a cliff bar, dresses his wounds, gives him a ride to a hotel, stays the night with him to make sure he is okay, and pays the Marriott bill in full, well, by this time, the media has already posted thousands of articles about how often these attacks happen, and there's a 24-hour-long news cycle that shows the video of his assault over and over, and HuffPo and CNN and Slate have all now told the story of the assault from every single angle imaginable. It's all anyone's talking about, so it starts to feel like it's all that there is. But then you realize, no mention of the Samaritan They never once mention the kindness. Violence is highlighted in mercy and generosity or ignored because mercy and generosity make bad news. I'm not sure about anyone else, but that week it started to feel as though our news feeds, TVs, and radios had been replaced with some sort of atrocity of the day calendar of terrorist attacks and police shootings and hate crimes. So I was understandably dreading office hours that week because I just didn't feel like I had any wisdom for anyone. Nothing insightful or helpful, and so I was grateful that what I so clearly did not have to offer was offered to me by those who showed up. Megan was quiet the whole time, as is her way, but when Aram asked what she was thinking, she shared what Stephen Gould wrote in an op-ed soon after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. It was this. Good and kind people outnumber all others by thousands to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts of evil, not in the high frequency of evil people. Complex systems can only be built step by step, whereas destruction requires but an instant. Thus, 
in what I like to call the great asymmetry, every spectacular incident of evil will be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, too often unnoticed and invisible as ordinary efforts of the vast majority, he wrote. And he said, we have a duty, almost a holy responsibility to record and honor the victorious weight of those innumerable little kindnesses when an unprecedented act of evil so threatens to distort our perception of ordinary human behavior. So I stood there on July 10th and said that. As I was despondent about our atrocity of the day world, and as I was at the same time reading this story of the Good Samaritan over and over, there was something that suddenly was glaring in the text, a simple thing in this story that made all the difference for me that week, and it's this, column inches. And I invited my congregation to look at the text again. The entire focus of the, good, of the story of the Good Samaritan was not on the violence or the idiocy. The focus of the story was mercy and loving kindness. The robbers get about a dozen words, but the Samaritan gets the rest of the story. And yet that week, I was afraid to look away and see any good because to do so was to come perilously close to pretending that the violence wasn't bad. But in the story of the merciful Samaritan, Jesus told the truth about the seriousness of the attack. He told the truth about the inadequacy of how the priest and Levite responded. But on none of these things did he dwell. He used most of his canvas for this story, painting a picture not of assault, but of generosity. Which means there's another option. The choice is not between ignoring violence and suffering and thus glibly using our privilege to insulate ourselves from this present darkness or focusing exclusively on the violence and suffering and glumly using our access to social media to see nothing but this present darkness. So I said that, look, evil might have the news cycle, but it does not have the victory. The darkness does not get to have our hearts It does not get to fill our minds, and it does not get to steal our joy. And looking for the love, the light, the kindness in the world around us is not the same as pretending that evil isn't evil. I believe that we can sit in the suffering, we can name the evil forces of racism and gun violence, and we can confess our own complicity, and we can lament and protest, but what we can never do is allow evil a true victory We will not be deceived into reversing the math and believing that evil has the numbers because it does not. Omar Mateen, the Orlando nightclub shooter, was one man. His act of terrorism and murder and hate had a devastating effect on so many lives in the city of Orlando. But you cannot tell me that the evil of one man won when in response millions of people all over the world marched in support and love for those affected. It's not vapid optimism, it's just math. What Omar Mateen intended for evil, God used for good. I preached this because while I can be a bit cynical, I will not be a nihilist. I won't do it. Not while I believe in the love of God, a God who I believe defeats sin, death, and the devil. Evil rages, but evil is also fucking pathetic. So as an act of defiance that night at church, on a large piece of paper, my congregation surrounded the names of those who died that week, cops and civilians both, and surrounded those names, writing down words of loving kindness. We wrote down 
every act of kindness and generosity that we could remember happening that same week. If Stephen Gould's math is right, we need 10,000, but the good news is that there is more than that out there. We must remember that if we become so consumed by the effects of evil, we risk missing the chance to be kind to a stranger, and we miss the chance to stop and read to our kids, and we miss the chance to notice how acts of beauty and kindness outnumber acts of evil by the thousands. We hand evil a bigger victory than it earned when, in fact, it has already lost. Because in that same 24-hour news cycle that could only speak of evil, Babies were born. People fell in love. Someone put an old lady's shopping cart back for her. Casseroles were brought to the homebound. Prayers were said. Little girls made brand new friends. And someone paid for the coffee the person behind them in line. And flowers were brought to the Dallas Police Department. And children made perfectly misspelled protest signs. And people made up. And someone in the coffee shop let me hold their baby because they could tell I needed it. Because every second of the day, God arrives unannounced in the merciful and loving kindness of other people. And I want to be a warrior and a preacher of that shit. Our next speaker is Mara. Uh, Thank you, Rebecca. Sorry, it's actually Mara. I'm so sorry. That's okay. That's why I didn't respond, but that's my fault, you know? It's just my name. No, it's all right. Um, Wow, guys, that was so fun. Give it one more time for uh, Nadia. That was amazing. Uh, Hi, my name's Mara. Uh, Again, give it up for Rebecca, too, for putting this all together. I was so... Uh, so uh, pleased to be asked to be here tonight, um, and also light, give it up for Lighthouse uh, workshop, writing, writing Workshop. Never been inside this building uh, before. Uh, give it up for me one more time. Uh, I'm pretty... Give it up for me for being a brave performer. Thank you. My brave comedic path. Thank you again, right? Taking... Ch- oh, so brave. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I was really uh, kind of stressed to be here tonight. Um, talking in front of what I think is probably... Oh, hey, okay, there they are. I was looking for you guys. I'll mention you in a minute. Sorry. This is just how I operate. Um, I'm spastic. This is going to happen a couple times. I was really honored to be here tonight, which is probably probably one of the most intellectual, uh, good-looking groups in Denver, so good for you guys. One I'm over with a compliment. Done. Okay. Um, I was stressed, and then I remembered um, I was not getting paid, so I was like, who cares? Um, <laughs> woo! <laughs> They gave me drinks. That's usually how I get paid. Um, my name is Mara. Uh, Mara Wise. I'm a stand-up comedian here in Denver. Um, and, it, you know, it's not a practical choice. It wasn't, like, the best idea right away. Uh, you know, if my mom only knew the amount of times I was spent in disgusting dive bars, uh, talking to men of ill repute, uh, she probably would not be so supportive asking me to get on the Ellen. Um <laughs> You know, I don't even feel comfortable in yoga, so it's hard for me to say that I'm living my truth, but 
I, I am. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I didn't know uh, comedy was my life until it just grabbed me and shook me. Uh, performing has always been part of who I am. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, if it's not a calling, I truly, I mean, I, I believe my stand-up is my calling. Uh, I get joy from doing it. Uh, it drives me every day. And if that isn't a calling, I don't know what is. Uh, so I hope everyone finds time to find what their calling is, whatever that may be. For me, it just involves... Uh, telling jokes to strangers, trying to make my truth unique yet relatable. Or Rebecca kind of summed that up perfectly in my intro. It's complicated because you want everyone to relate to you, but you want them to remember you, get your name right, things like that. Uh, <laughs> comedy takes me a lot of different places, and it has totally shaped and changed my life and made me go places and meet people I never thought I would. Like tonight, who knew? Who knew I'd be here tonight? I mean, look at the company I'm keeping right now. Two community leaders a pastor, a New York Times bestseller, okay? A theater owner, an activist, uh, a professor, uh, and me, a gal with a perfectly quafted uh, handjob joke. And <laughs> people need that too. <laughs> people need that too. Um, organized, detailed, meticulous, perfectionist, those are words I would not use to describe myself or my process, nothing like that. No, I am uh, more spontaneous, spastic, and in spurts. Uh, the S's, as I like to call them. Uh, to me, it's all visceral. I'm a really physical person. I get excited. I move around. Uh, I was singing and dancing, even though I'm not a singer nor a dancer, before I was allowed to really be in front of people. Uh, I had captive audiences, a.k.a. my aunts and uncles, listening to me sing... Annie, little Bonnie Fufu, just annoying the shit out of everyone any chance I got. Uh, I've always been a ham. That's who I am. Uh, it's something I used to help fit in, adjust when I moved places. I moved around a little bit as a kid. Humor was a great relator. It brought people together. It made people want to hang out with you. Uh, and if... If that's what my calling was, I, I didn't know it. I tried to push it down. Because at some point, when the humor was helping you fit in, it also made you want to fit in more. You know, I, I was really busy. I never did any sort of drama as a kid or debate or theater, things I probably would have loved and excelled in. Uh, but I came from a sports family, you know? I was too busy being a mediocre basketball player, softball player, uh, a yearbook editor. I mean, I could, prom queen. I could go on and on about my accomplishments, but that's not why we're here. <laughs> Likeability only goes so far. Uh, I tried so hard to be what I thought was acceptable as a human, as an adult person with goals and thoughts. Comedy, being a stand-up comic, not one of those things. Uh, growing up, I loved Saturday Night Live, which premium blend, uh, Cheers, Mary Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke. Those are the things I looked to. I think I liked Mary Tyler Moore because she could cry at work. I think that's what was the appeal for me. It seemed relatable. Uh, I, I, I just didn't know. I felt it and I didn't know. Uh, and for me, it all kind of really got pushed in the right direction uh, when I got uh, voted class clown. It meant so much to me. And I didn't even realize I was being that funny. Um, just a gift. And uh, I got voted class clown. And then I went to college. And in college, I pursued broadcast news, which I think looking back, I think was just my perverse way of thinking, I'm going to get on TV. Uh, but this is like the most legitimate way. But I didn't like research or calling people on the phones or details or facts or anything like that. So I was soon jaded by that upon graduation. And I was living in Denver, uh, working 40 hours a week at P.F. Chang's, making gallons and gallons and gallons of special sauce. Uh, 
looking for a job in advertising or marketing, something creative. Uh, uh, my whole life, creative, something that I could talk and work with people always appealed to me. Um, and uh, during that time, I was very depressed. And I'm not a depressed person. I'm pretty, pretty amped all the time. I'm mostly optimistic, uh, which means uh, I get disappointed a lot. And uh, <laughs> at this point in time in my life, I, I really knew, uh, after taking an acting for non-majors class, I knew that performing really spoke to me. It, it switched on a, uh, a light in me I didn't even know I had. Um, so as a gift, one of my aunts, who actually really wanted to go to Nadia's church when she was in town, which I think is so funny because she was the one that started me on my path, uh, she bought me an eight-week class to an improv theater called Impulse Theater. One of the original owners is actually here tonight. She takes classes here at Lighthouse. She's an amazing writer. Give it up for Sue. She started all this. She, she started all this. Um, so she bought me some improv classes. And from there, I took the classes. They liked me enough to ask me to join. And it changed my life. I lost friends and family doing it because... <laughs> You stop hanging out. Your schedule's weird. People want to go get drinks. You're like, no, I'm sorry. I've got to go, go to an improv show and have 40-year-old men show each other their balls. It's, it, sounds, it sounds weird, but that's basically what improv is. Um, Sue and Sarah know what I'm talking about, who are here tonight. They were my former cast members. And, um, so I started doing improv all the time, and it was amazing. It was amazing. I found a community of people that I understood. They spoke in the same language I did, and... Uh, one night after a show, uh, going to see Tim and Eric at the Ogden Theater with a group of improvisers, um, I walked into my first open mic, unbeknownst, uh, a little drunk, to the Squire Lounge, which if you guys do not know what that is, it is was the, uh, the nastiest mic in America. Uh, I saw a guy vomit on stage there once on top of a Bible. It's this weird place. Uh, but that night I was done for. Stand-up sold me. It was uh, comics who are now have had appearances on The Tonight Show, uh, Jimmy Fallon, tonight was Jimmy Fallon, Conan O'Brien, you name it, they were there that night. Uh, if you don't know that Denver has an amazing comedy scene, I suggest you go out and find it because it's amazing. <clears throat> and I was sold. Um, that's all I wanted to do from then on out. It became my life. Uh, improv was too, but stand-up kind of took a new place for me. Uh, stand-up is, stand-up being a stand-up comedy is like being your own unpaid intern. Um, <laughs> a lot of grunt work, <laughs> a lot of uh, undo thanks. Uh, no one's paying you, and you have to make your own coffee. Um, but, it, it's, but it is who I am. And once I found it, I didn't know how not to do it anymore. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for people to know. If you are struggling with choosing a creative lifestyle um, or battling between putting one foot in, I think we all have to make that choice. Um, sometimes it's made for you. <laughs> sometimes it is not made for you. Um, so about this point, I had been doing stand-up uh, full-time, or stand-up full-time. I was not getting paid. I was doing stand-up. Uh, I was performing improv. I was working a full-time job. Um, I was in my young, I was, I've been doing seven years. I was in my mid-20s. I was feeling good, feeling good. And then suddenly, I got really sick. I got super sick. Uh, I had kidney failure. I, well, lupus, which led to kidney failure. Um, it changed my entire life. Because you go from having energy that you can have on stage and off stage, and then you don't have it anymore. Uh, if you have anyone who knows anyone with an autoimmune disease, that's mainly one of the biggest things, fatigue. And to be a good performer, energy, presence, poise are things that you want. Um, 
So losing that terrified me. And losing what I found. I found it. I just found it, and then I got sick. What was I going to do? I had to leave the theater I had been with for about three and a half years because the rehearsal schedule was too intense. Um, and I took time off. I... Uh, tried to get healthy. Through that, I did experimental drugs. I uh, started losing more and more kidney function. From there, I started taking chemotherapy because they said that could help rebuild cells in my kidney. I got more tired. Uh, I started dating my current partner. I told him to break up with me because nobody wants to date a sick girl. I was more of a Beth from Little Women, not a Joe. Uh, I knew you guys would get that. Not everybody does. I knew you guys would. (laughs) But he didn't. He stayed. Um, He saw something, and he's always seen something in me that has really pulled me through the darkest days. Um, I'm I'm not reading through notes. It's just a picture of a pony. And um, (laughs) so I got sick. I slowed down. I tried to stay involved in stand-up because stand-up is something you can do on your own. You can always write on your own. You maybe can't perform on the days you're really not feeling good. But um, I tried my best to stay active. I kind of kept it to myself, which I regret looking back. But everybody struggles with their own uh, inadequacies in different ways and problems in their life. So I was sick. Uh, I got sicker and sicker. Um, I was trying to work all the time. I was trying to perform all the time. I never knew how to stop. And eventually that caught up with me. Uh, I went into total renal failure on August 8th, 2012. Um, Stopped working because I had to, uh, because you can't work when you're in hospital bed. And uh, went on disability and started my path to wellness, which involved uh, dialysis, uh, home dialysis, and eventually a kidney transplant. Um, So that all leads back to now. I feel like that was about three years ago. Um, I was given a kidney by one of my closest friends. Uh, who inspires me? Someone who's given me a gift reminds me how precious life is every day. Uh, so for me, for me, inspiration isn't just finding a funny idea and going with it. It's reminding myself that, God, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Uh, once I became healthy again, I had to make a choice. Do I go back to work full-time? Something that I really liked the people I was working with. It wasn't bad work. It was creative, but it wasn't my calling. It wasn't what drew me, and I knew I wasn't giving my whole heart to it. Um, so I left. Uh, and I think that's an important thing for creative types to remember. Sometimes you have to make your life work for your passion. You know, sometimes the job isn't right. Sometimes people aren't right. And if it's really, truly your calling and your passion, you will find ways to make it work. So I left the advertising agency I'd been working at. I was done with Chang's. Um, I left there (laughs) and I modified, I found ways to supplement my income. Um, luckily comedy provides um, some months more than others, but that's just how it is. Um, I also walk dogs and I serve, yeah, thank you. I'm a two of my clients. I mean, I've got fans tonight, dog walking clients, improv friends, um, end of list, end of list. Uh, <laughs> partner, not here tonight. Um, but it was something I needed to do. Um, it was really hard for me to make that leap though. Cause my whole entire life, uh, stability, money, uh, those basic needs were always drilled into me. I mean, those are important, but uh, for me, it seemed like if you didn't have a nine to five, you couldn't have a life. You know, you couldn't provide for yourself no matter what you tried. Um, but when I made that leap, uh, leap and I came out as a comic, you know, you start saying it proudly to people instead of being like, well, I'm in advertising, plus I've got a degree in marketing and broadcast journalism, but I'm also a stand up comic. You know, you. I started to own it. And once I started to own my passion, doors opened for me. Um, 
you've—it's just such a testament of believing in yourself. Because honestly, with stand-up, if you don't believe in yourself, there's no one else that will. You know, like doesn't. I've like talked. I've had days where I've been upset, thinking I'm so unappreciated. The voice of my generation. Why does no one notice? I'm gonna quit, Kevin. I'm gonna quit. Um, and also, and I thought right after that, well, then nobody would care. Uh, more stage time for them. Because life is not for the people who complain and piss away the opportunities they get thinking they're either too good or not good enough. They're for the people who really grab at them and go with them, make a stupid ideal all their own. Uh, <clears throat> and that's what comedy has done for me. Um, I've been doing it seven years now. Right now, I, it's part of my mosaic of a lifestyle. Um, it's a mosaic filled of, like, you know, Miller High Life and half-smoked blunts and... Uh, <laughs> notebooks and uh and friendships that i can't you know you look at it, it's like a pile of shit but you back up and it's really cool um it's like a very cool street art um and from comedy i've kind of built this amazing family and support group which i think is really great about community i'm sure we'll see with both the speakers tonight um you you meet your people your tribe and i think performers and creatives um in general are their own type of weird group you know denver is filled with them that's i think is so intrinsically denver it's a lot of nomads a lot of freelancers entrepreneurs comedians musicians people that are undefined by nature and you know that's the wild west of colorado for you um those are the people i'm drawn to those are the people i find inspiration from the local businesses that have helped me along the way um they're not here tonight but i'll mention them because uh, i think it's really important part if you are a business owner that you try to contribute uh ratio beer works donates to my monthly show the funny side sessions every month free beer great comedy uh <laughs> The Denver Bicycle Cafe, a friend owns that, and I told her how I was easing back into working more jobs, and she was willing to work with me, and knowing that this is my passion, she's always helped me. Uh, sup, dog, dog walking, people who help me build who I am. Uh, and I think it's just really important to look at those, those companies and build those relationships within community. I don't just know comics. I know bands, I know uh, actors, I know drag queens. I know everyone in all facets of the creative life here in Denver because I've put myself in position to do so. Um, being a performer, being a creative type is all about being brave, being honest, being really raw with yourself. And if you're not doing that, I think you're doing a disservice to yourself and to your audience. Um, uh, it, it's, and that's the scary part. <laughs> being creative is kind of frightening. You have to make choices that aren't easy, that aren't comfortable, that aren't practical, but they have to be all yours. Um, my mom's terrified for me. My dad's probably nervous. Uh, we're not getting married. Why not? Because we don't have money for it. You know, these are the reasons um, a creative survives. And, you know, there's no guarantee. You know, there's not like a course of action. If anyone's ever, like, uh, you know, if you become a doctor, you know, you do, your re you do med school, you do your residency, well, you're a surgeon. Good for, good for fucking you, you know? Um, Stand-up could take years, decades even, you know, it, it happens. Sometimes it's the right place, right time. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just years of work, years on the road, until something finally comes together. Um, like I said, Denver has a great scene. For me, being a part of this scene has meant so much. It's meant community when I've been recovering. Uh, it's meant community when I'm soaring, when I'm having a streak of hot shows, people come out and support. Um, I'm inspired by my 
peers every day. Like I, people ask me my favorite comedians. It's honestly guys I know in this city, guys who started in this city. If you don't know the Growlix, they have a show on True TV that everyone should watch. Um, those were three of the first people that really helped me understand the business of comedy, how you should work hard and how that will pay off. I mean, example, they built a following here. Three comedians started a monthly show. They built a following. They found a venue that supported them. They built that following. From there, they made a web series with a local production company that helped get them an Amazon pilot that turned into season two of their television show. And that all started here in Denver. Um, We're not a flyover state. We've got some of the most vivacious, for lack of sound like my mom, vivacious performers... (laughs) Because they're making it in a different way. They're making it kind of all on their own. They're getting notice without being in L.A. or New York. And I think that's a really important thing to know. Uh, Granted, do I know if I'll stay in Denver forever? I do not know. Um, I don't know what my end goal is either. Because as a stand-up comic, you're self-motivated all the time. I could reach my dream of dreams and still not know it because I'll be working on another joke, another project with another group of people. Um, and that's why I think it keeps me motivated. There's no nothing else in your life that... Um, it's just so weird to be so... I don't know what other people do with their time. You know, like, <laughs> like if I'm not working or with my partner, I'm trying to think of good new ideas, different ways to make a video, to get involved in some sort of, you know, be the best performer I can be um, to make people remember me, to make sure they get my name right. Um, <laughs> I'll do it a couple more times. Um, I don't know what I'm doing is like anything important or anything great, but it's what makes the culture of a city interesting. You know, having performers is what makes a place fun to go to. And I'm happy to be that. I want to have a voice that people recognize that they relate to. As long as they don't tell me that they could be a stand-up comic too, I'm fine with most people. Um, Because performing, comedy, writing, it's all about showing up. Uh, Showing up to the... Like when I met Rebecca like two months ago, and I was like, well, this seems like a lot of prep. Um... Trust me, it was not for me. Uh, <laughs> like I said, like I think about stuff for a really long time. I really stew over it. I come up with little quips. I think how I can work in jokes from my routine in any talk I do. And, um, and then I usually end up writing it the day before. And then I usually type it out in some sort of Word document on my phone that I never read. Then I also write it down, and then I don't read those notes either. Um, it's a fail-proof way of winning over an audience, guys. Um, Um, for my process is is life I I really do strive I'm not a one-liner comic I'm try to tell stories I get frustrated with myself constantly because I don't think I'm a hard enough worker I don't think I'm writing on a daily basis I'm not meeting with my practice and having a moment drinking a cup of chai every morning I don't do that I try I really just can't do it uh there are too many hungover mornings. There are too many tired mornings. There's too many days where I just am too busy. I applaud the people that can do it. But for me, my life is always changing. And that's just part of being like a weird gypsy performer. And I wouldn't change it for anything because I still find time to sit down with my thoughts. Um, and even if you're not a performer, I implore you, do the same. Because there's some weird shit in there um, we should all check out sometimes. Um, I, I really think... Um, it's just, it's really cool that you guys are all here. It's really great to be here. And I think for me, um, what I'm most proud of, of what I've done for myself, because for, I hate when comics say they like, oh, I love how the laughter, people's joy. That's not for me. I like how your laughter makes me feel. It's, um, it's totally selfish. 
everything I do is mostly selfish, but that's fine. I don't have a kid. I have a dog. He's fine. He's fine. Um, it's a selfish career choice in a lot of ways, even any type of creative. Um, but it's also a very giving choice. You're putting yourself out there to make connections, to meet people, whether it's comedically, some sort of um, you know, community leader, theater, however you're making that presence. And I find that um, I'm different from a lot of stand-ups because I have an improv background. I also try to act as much as possible. I try to write my own videos and plays and things like that. Um, I maybe spread myself too thin, but that's just kind of how my brain works. So maybe one month I've got like 10 sketches that I've written and then I film them for my show with uh, the production company that I work with. And then next month I've got 10 new bits from a hilarious interaction with my mother. Anything can change. Um, I find inspiration just from people day to day. I try to take notes constantly, look around, be observant, write down the funny things that your family members say because there's no one else like them. Um, my mom told me she wanted me to be a forever baby once, and that sounds like a weird porcelain doll. <clears throat> Sometimes jokes don't work right away. They don't. You try them, you go out. I write on stage a lot, which is kind of what I'm doing right now. Uh, writing on stage is just seeing if something works, editing yourself, and going with it. Um, and seeing how the comic or the, the the audience reacts, writing on stage is just winging it. And I think people ask me if improv has influenced my life at all. It totally has. It's given me better people skills, better skills on stage. It's given me ways to communicate I didn't even know I had. Um, plus, life is improv, so just have fun with it. Uh, say yes a lot. That's all you have to do. Saying yes for me has given me countless opportunities. Uh, I've uh, done the Risk podcast. So that, you know, saying yes to that. I've, I've gotten to meet uh, many interesting people doing weird events. I did a dog fundraiser once, and I had to wear a headset. It was very strange. Uh, it's given me the opportunity to do commercials. I've done TV shows on an app program, but that, you know it's still still television. Um, everything's an app these days, but. Um, it's helped me work with drag queens, work with the DCPA. I never turn down an opportunity that sounds like it could benefit me or ha would help me meet some new people. I'm most proud of being a performer now because I can say it without hesitation. For so long, I was drilled into the state school uh, idea of what it was. Get married at 25, uh, have a marketing job with a wedding wire or something like that until you're 30, then have kids. That's just not my life. And it's okay for that not to be your life. I'm proud of my resilience, my perspective, and my relationships. And I think that's a really important thing for people to keep in mind when they do pursue a uh, creative pursuit. You don't have to be miserable. I'm not a miserable stand-up comic. I'm not. I refuse to be, because that's not where I find inspiration. I find inspiration from joy, from life. I fought too hard to be here to let a bad attitude bring me down. The hardest part is always our ego. And I think uh, we all have to remind ourselves constantly, there's always going to be somebody better, funnier, better looking, younger, can't go back in time. Why have I lived here so long? Why haven't I done enough? I'm sorry, I'm spiraling. <laughs> but living in Colorado and being in Denver has really helped me become the performer I want to be. There's a lot of freedom here, and there's a lot of opportunity. Um, so I just want to say thank you again for letting me speak tonight. Um, if you're interested in trying stand-up or trying your dreams, my only advice to people who come up to me telling me, I'm really funny, I think I could do stand-up, then just fucking do it already. I'm sick of hearing you talk about it. <laughs> just do it. That's, it's, so, it's a new slogan that I'm going to patent. Just do it. 
um, thank you so much, Rebecca and Lighthouse, for having me tonight. You guys are amazing. Um, please enjoy the rest of the. You have to enjoy the rest of your evening. And if you guys like me, I'm sorry. This is my shameless self promotion. I've got to plug. I've got to do it myself. Um, I'm, I run. I work at the Denver Beer Hall Bicycle Cafe. I have a million jobs. I delivered fruit for way too long once, and uh, we're doing a show on the 23rd. There, uh, it's got Adam Kate and Holland from the Growlix headlining. So please come check that out. Five dollars, and then the Funny Side Session, which I do every first Thursday of the month with Image Brew Studios, which is the production studio in town. They let us take over their space. Uh, so support live comedy, support uh, local artists. Give it up for Rebecca, everybody. Well, you know how I said that, that like my primary identity is that I'm a preacher? Really, if, if I had not... Um, my books really come out of my sermons. So if I wasn't a preacher, I don't think... People have actually asked, because you know, I'm, I'm half-time in my parish now. They have a full-time priest, uh, Episcopal priest who's amazing. Because uh, half-time I'm speaking, on the, I'm on the road speaking. And people have asked, do you think you'll eventually be just a speaker and a writer? And I'm like the fuck am I going to write about? Like, working out? Literally, it's the only other thing I do. I don't, I have no hobbies. Nobody wants a book from me about working out, right? So everything that I have to write about or talk about comes out of the parish that I'm in. And so um, that's, I think just the fact that I'm a preacher really is the origin of anything else I do, truly, anything else I do. So, but yeah, they're different processes. I had to, I feel like a beginner as a writer, so I had to, um, I'm still in the process of learning how to write. Um, I, I have a, an interesting story that way that, that, um, you know, my whole family's educated beyond their intelligence. Like they all have degrees, but they're not very smart. I don't know if you guys know people like that, but, um, and I was like the family screw up. And so, um, I, I never did well in school my whole life, and I thought, um, you know, maybe I had a learning disability or something, and part of it has to do with being very sick as a child, but um, I, I failed out of college very quickly. I, I just never had success, and I thought I wasn't book smart, and, but I really love movies, and I was in uh, Eugene, Oregon, and I thought, well, you know, I've been sober a few years. I, I thought I could try going to a community college night class where they're discussing film as literature, and uh, I was so excited, and then I... Uh, I brought the, all the stuff home, and I didn't even look at it. My husband at the time said, um, he goes, well, did they give you a syllabus? And I'm like, what? I didn't even know what that word was. And I said, he goes, did they give you a paper? I'm like, yeah. And I handed it. He goes, oh, you just have to write like two five-page papers. Like, that shouldn't be. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> and I went to the teacher, and I said, I think I have to drop the class because I can't write. Like, it's not that I'm a illiterate I just sound illiterate when I write and um and so I was uh I was terrified I was like I actually cried when I was trying to write my first paper about a movie for a community college night class (laughs) and so that's my that's the origin of me writing right and at the end of the term she called me into her office and she said you know I was reflecting on our conversation Uh, from the beginning of the term, so I feel like it might be important for you to hear me say something, and that is that I've taught college for 20 years, and you're one of the smartest students I've ever had. I was like, you've had really stupid students. (laughs) Wow. 
But I actually went, really? And then I was sort of unstoppable after that. And it, whenever I tell that story, I was like, if you see something in someone you think they might not see in themselves, it's your responsibility to the world to say it. Because that woman, Susan Glasso, changed my life. But so writing for me is a blood sport. It's hard. I, I, I'm just racked with insecurity. And it has to do with the fact that I didn't even think I could write a five-page paper about a movie when I started college. So I've come a long way, but I still feel like a beginner. And I took workshops here when writing Pastrix, my first memoir. Um, and then I, and I wrote here when writing the second one as well. So come to Lighthouse. Actually, I'd like to talk about your writing. Um, I, I was sitting back there, and I, I mean, you're... That your arc and and the clingness of how you built this to build the storyline and the initial references that you, you you put for us to kind of come back. One of the things we say is you can't put anything on stage unless you're going to deal with it at some point. Because if you do, then and you did, you put all kinds of stuff on the stage for us, and then one by one at the end you started to you started to address them and stuff like that. Your prose are beautiful. It's precise. It's you know I was going. I'm really admiring. I'm re- so I admire. What you, oh, you the writing that I heard that I heard tonight and and and, and we I can go on about about a lot of great stuff I heard in it it was it, so I, I think you got a little bit better um, <laughs> but I'm impressed. I actually had a question for you, Tony. Um, I've been reading a lot about writing for out, outside of like a white woman, you know, like and how. It's sort of challenging for a lot of writers to kind of get outside of their comfort zone and their knowledge base and their experience. I was wondering how you write for a black man or write for different types of people, I guess. Have you ever written for a black man? Yeah. Well, with with this project, uh, I had Gary Washington, who was and still is black. Uh, and, And so... And, and we went, we got into a couple of things because Gary was doing this Rastafarian and one of his other stuff, and it was like but Gary goes, "I never heard him say any of this." So we had to we had to actually bring it up on on a video to show G- Gary that I was closer. But actually, I have to say, um, writing where I feel the most imitate in, intimidated is writing women, right? And um, so I had this this one experience, this piece called Ludlow, and it was about a. a it was about a woman who comes to the house, and Ludlow's about the mining strike in southern Colorado, comes to the house to close up business because the uncle has died. Grandmother's been dead for a really long time, but she hates the grandmother because she believes that the grandmother was the reason the father died. So there's all this kind of, so she was all, she has all these issues coming in there. But then we start to introduce the grandmother, and we find other things, and we find out that she was a witness to the massacre there, and she saw the black man that she loved die. Oh, you got to play that one too, huh? Yeah, so there it is. Um, and but that's Don's job. He gets to kiss all the girls um, and die. And die. <laughs> so uh, the first time we did, I mean, every when I was writing this stuff, I did a lot of research and and I went down to Walsenburg and and the whole area of Trinidad and I walked through the areas and I and I just kind of tried to pick up this thing intrinsically of what was what was going on there and every night I would go back to the to the the computer I think I wrote it on a the computer then um and and I would go okay what are you going to do what's going to happen right and I would and I really felt that a lot there was a lot of of her 
telling, you know, doing these things, man. What kind of crazy thing are you going to do? Because she would do stuff, right? And then the second time we did it, which was 20 years later, it was in 2014, the anniversary of the massacre, right? I was in the rehearsal and I went, son of a bitch, that's my mom, right? That's why I knew her. That's why I was able to connect with her. It took me 20 years to realize that it was my mom talking and it was my mom doing all of those things. So I don't know what the lesson is in that, but it is, I, I mean, when I'm writing women, there is, there, I, I never come from a point of, of I'm, I'm, I'm creating this. It's like, okay, what are you guys going to do? You know, uh, I think I have when I'm doing males and stuff like that, all the sarcasm and all that other bullshit, we, that's intrinsic. But there's this other, it was another point of I just, she, I don't ever really feel that I wrote her. I think she went out and she did her stuff. I mean, she has a moment where they're beating up her boyfriend and she comes out and she says, get away from him or I'll shoot you. Bam! <laughs> it was like there's no moment for her to wait for them to move. She just said, get away from him, fucker. Bam! Oh, shit, I was supposed to wait. So... <laughs> The idea of, of that play on words, right? Uh, that la, la locura, which is craziness, right? Locura, which is to cure. So the idea then is like, well, what are all the things? What are all the things then that 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 we can have this 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 overlap? I mean, because it goes everywhere. This is this is probably we we kept coming back to the psychiatrist's office just to to balance it out. But it, I mean, it it goes into gender bending stuff where people get changed from male to female and there's a whole thing where the men all get pregnant it's actually called when pigs fly and men have babies which is my mother again because when i would say i was going to get something done and she would say when when pigs fly and men have babies meaning it was never going to happen right so so yeah it was a takeoff from that and this is probably the most coherent in that area right the rest of it it, and it was a lot about i mean the, the whole idea is talking about uh, I mean, what we're experiencing here is that is that the, the the future of this of this country, you know, if we are to have that future, is going to be all of us mixing together. We go to Thanksgiving dinner, and there's you know, I have you know, I have nephews that are half black and half brown, half yellow and half brown, and the next piece is going to be and half white and half brown. The next piece is going to be they're going to be they're going to be Arab. They're going to be, we're going to have all that mixture. And that, some of us think that's a beautiful, great thing. You know, uh, when I was in, I was in Hawaii and, and I picked up this, this, this uh, album, Israel Kamakawewele. And so he does, he does Somewhere in the Rainbow, everybody knows him. But he did this thing, man. I was listening and he does this version of Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star in English and Hawaiian. And so we added it actually into our Christmas show where the cholo comes out and it's a Christmas thing and the star comes up and he starts to sing it and it's hysterical because the audience starts to cry but the song is, I mean, starts to laugh but the song is so beautiful by the time he, so we took it from Hawaii and put it in Spanish so by the time he starts to sing it in Spanish at the end they're all crying because we've taken him to that place and for me, knowing where it came from knowing that we took that culture and, and we, we kind of meshed it into something that worked for us and stuff like that. I mean, all my friends back in Hawaii are just like, they love it. But, but it's that kind of thing of all that hybridity, which is really what I think the future is. It's all of those, those languages kind of coming together.
Everybody else was plugging right before they left, so quick. Let me plug, all right? I was just... Let me plug, Tony. I was just uh, awarded a grant from an outfit called Denver Arts and Venues to produce my first uh, feature film. And... Thank you. It's not so much plug as I am in need, uh, seriously, of a cinematographer. So if y'all, nope, serious business. So get at me if you know this is an artistic group. So that is, we, we got some seed money, and now I got to get this crew together. So I'm serious about that. If anyone knows a cinematographer, independent, not, not a lot of money, okay? Small budget. Keep that in mind. 